I want to start by asking kind of a silly question. Uh, have you ever thought about, like, I'm, I'm kind of a word dork, and I always try to, like, try to figure out why words mean what they mean, like the etymology of a word. Like, do you think about these things, like, when you hear a strange word, you're like, where did that come from? Why is that, like it is, or, like, things in culture that we do that you're like, why do we do that? So, for instance, one of the things that has bothered me since I was a little kid is, like, why do we say God bless you when people sneeze? And I know there's, a good, there's somebody's going to have the answer, like, well, in the medieval times, they thought your soul escaped your body, so you had to say God bless But, like, why do we still do it, right? Like, nobody believes that anymore, that someone's soul is escaping, so we better say God bless you over there. But we still do it. We've probably chopped off the God part of it, and we just say bless you. Like, it interrupts classes. It interrupts, like, on a plane, like, there'll be, like, six people that say it at the same, in church service. Now, if it happens today, people, it's going to be funny. Uh, but we, like, why do we do that? And we, we don't know why we really do it anymore. Just culturally, we do it. And we pass it down to our kids, and they do it. And we had a professor in college who would tell us not to say it, because he was like, do you remember this? Uh, we had a professor who would say, don't say that. Don't interrupt my class to say, God bless you. We don't need to say it anymore. Anyway, why do we do these things? And so what I want to do over the next couple weeks, there's going to be a five-week series, I want to take a look at, like, why do we do what we do in church? Why do we do that? And we're going to look at things like, why do we go to church? We're going to talk about that today. Why do we go to church, quote unquote? Why do we listen to a guy preach? Why do we share testimonies? Why do we sing? Why do we do Christian karaoke, right? Like, look at words, sing it. Like, why do we do that? Why do we give offerings? Why do we do communion? And so we're going to take five weeks just to look at some of these basics of the church, and then we're going to go into an Advent series, and then in the new year, we're probably going to do Galatians, uh, for those of you who are interested to know that. So today, what I want to do is, is talk about why we go to church, and I'm going to keep putting that in quotes. Why do we go to church? And I know some people historically have gone to church as sort of uh, like a club or sort of like a social networking thing. Uh, it's not as prevalent anymore, but I know politicians would go in past presidents, uh, presidential races. They would ask them, like, what church are you a part of? And I'm part of the Methodist church. I read 2 Corinthians. I go to this. I'm part of this denomination over here. Remember this? Like, we would ask presidents. Like, we would really care. But I don't even know if they cared that they went to church, but they went as sort of a social thing or for a club to network and be with people. Or uh, people go out of, out of religion. People go to church. They feel like, I need to go to church so that God is happy with me. Or if I go to church, then, then therefore I'm a good Christian and God will bless me. And it's like this checkbox that they have to do. And they feel like, if I go two or three times out of the month, I'm covered. Like, I'm great. I've, I've done my, my good thing for God and he's happy with me. Or, or we go out of heritage. Like, our family has always gone to church. Or my family has always gone to this church or that church. So I now go to this church. It's just what we do. As the Smith family, this is what we do. I met a waitress this week, and, and we got to talking, and I asked her uh, where she went to church, and she told me, and she said, my, my family went there. My family were founding memory, uh, members. People like my family are buried in a cemetery. Like, we've always gone here. I'm like, do you like it? No. Oh, all right. Keep on going. I don't, know, I don't even know what to say to that, you know? But, like, we go out of heritage. I know some people go for kids, like, they, they bring their kids there. I know people who've dropped their kids off at church, and they go elsewhere because it's not relevant for their lives. But they feel like there's something moral about it that they want for their kids, so they drop them off there. A lot of people go to church because they get dragged there. All right? I know some of you in the room want to raise... No, don't raise your hand. Okay. Like, spouses bring them. Kids get dragged here. But they don't really know why they're there. They don't see it as relevant for their lives. What I want to do today is take just a little bit of time to talk about this, this idea that that we go to church for a reason. 
or we should go to church for a reason. And it's to remember the resurrection, to remember the gospel, and then to recenter our lives around it. To remember the resurrection and to recenter our lives around it. And we do that through instruction, through worship and singing, through offerings, through uh, being together, through having fellowship together. And so I want to start by looking at a passage from Acts 2. If you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn to Acts 2, you can. It's a short little section I'm going to read. Uh, so if you don't have it, don't overthink it. Um, but in, in this passage in Acts 2, we see that, that Jesus has, has lived his life on earth and, and he has been crucified and resurrected and he's commissioned the apostles, the disciples to, to start proclaiming him to the ends of the earth. And at this point, the church is, is in its infancy, and, and the people are starting to gather and be together in Jerusalem around this idea of the Messiah being Jesus. And in Acts 2.42, listen to what it says they were doing. Uh, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Uh, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's my question. It says right there in the beginning in verse 242, they were, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Like what were the apostles' teaching? What were, they, what were they proclaiming? What were they preaching and teaching? It says later in Acts that they decided to uh, assign roles to people in the church so that they could devote themselves to teaching and to prayer. What were they teaching? And what I would say is that they were most likely teaching the Old Testament because this is what they had at that point. They're interpreting the Old Testament for the people of Israel, who were uh, the, the Jews who were in their presence, and they were still Jewish background believers themselves. And they were proclaiming the story of the Messiah, they were proclaiming the resurrection. They were proclaiming that Jesus had become king through his death and resurrection. And they're reminding people of this week in and week out. And the people were devoting themselves to these, these eyewitness accounts of who Jesus was and what he had done. And they were remembering all that Jesus had done. And what I find fascinating there is that Luke doesn't even use the word church. All right? I just want to be clear about this. Luke doesn't even say they were going to church week in and week out. He just says they were gathering together and they were gathering in the temple courts. But he doesn't use the word church because what they were doing was really just a continuation of what the Jews had always done. They had gathered around the temple and then during exile they had gathered in synagogues. And they were always together remembering on a weekly basis what God had done over the centuries for Israel. So in this case they're just a continuing, in the continuing line of their Jewish background now under the reign of Jesus gathering together to remember all that God had done. And so I, I want to give a brief history lesson. And so for the history dorks in the room, like you're going to love this and everybody else, like don't tune out. All right, just hang on. It comes, comes back around to why we do what we do. But I want to look briefly at the history of the word church. Because the church, the word church, the idea of church was new, but, the, but the, the concept was ancient. Like I said, this gathering together was an ancient practice. So the word church. The word church first kind of shows up in Matthew 16, which if you know this story, you know that, that Jesus is traveling around the countryside. He's doing miracles, and people are starting to get this idea that maybe he's the one to come. Maybe he's the Messiah they had been waiting for. And he comes to his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? 
Who do people proclaim maybe that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Uh, some people say that you're the prophet that we've been waiting for, that Moses talked about. And he says, yeah, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly says, you're the Messiah. He says, you're the son of the living God, like you are the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, you're right. God revealed this to you, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, our translations say. On this rock, on this idea of, of, of the, the gospel, on Jesus being the Messiah, this is where I'm going to build my church. And if you get into the Greek and you look at this word church, it's actually the word ekklesia, which is two different words put together. It's a preposition ek and the verb kaleo, which means to call. So the word ek means out from, and the word kaleo means to call, to call out from. So, so what, what Jesus is saying is I'm going to build my called out ones on this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. See, this word ecclesia means that the church is a called out group of people. It's called out from the culture, called out from the society, and they're the chosen ones, and they are the ones who, they're the ones who get together. Like, this is really what it means, is that they assemble together. And I think another thing that was happening with this word ecclesia that Matthew uses here is that the word ecclesia was also an assembly in Greek politics, so it was this group of people that would help lead the government, who would help put laws into action, who would nominate people and, and get people into the military. And so it's this assembly called the ecclesia. Now, Matthew, I think, is co-opting this word and saying, this is our word for what we're going to be. We're going to be an assembly, this group of people called out from the culture, built on the resurrection, built on the gospel of Jesus. So it's, the word church is not necessarily a place. The word church is actually a people. The church is a group of people, but the church is also a place that those people gather, all right? So it's this ecclesia, this church, these called out ones. And like I said, there is a connection here to our Jewish ancestry. We believe that unless you are by blood a Jewish person, that we believe that by the Spirit we've been grafted into this Jewish ancestry, and we're connected to it from the church back through the synagogues, back through the people of Israel wandering through the desert. See, Israel was called out from among the nations. Do you know this? Like God called Israel and said, you are going to be a light to the Gentiles. I've called you among all the other nations. It's going to be you who the Messiah comes from someday. And you are going to be the ones who carry that seed forward into the future. They were called out. They were different. They were set apart. They were to be a nation of priests. And God told them over and over again, and he put laws in place or these, these ideas in place for them that they would remember all that God had done for them that they were set apart and all that God had done for them had kept them set apart. Do you remember going all the way back to Noah? Noah sets up an altar to remember what God had done. You get to Abraham, you see him setting up altars to remember what God has done, his promise for Abraham. You see it happen with Moses. You see it happen with Joshua. Remember when Joshua and the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River? Do you remember they take up these 12 stones out of the dry river and they set them on the other side and the people say, what are these for? And he says, so that when we see them, we remember what God has done for his set-apart people. We remember God's faithfulness to his chosen people. And God sets up holidays and feasts for the people of Israel that come around every week, that come around every year, to remind them of all that he has done for them, to set apart people, places of remembrance, holidays to remember, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, to remember all that God has done to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt, 
to set them apart into the promised land and say, you are my people. You are called out ones. I have called you out. I am for you. I'm doing something in you that is special. Remember it. Remember it. Remember it. He does this over and over and over again with them. But if you have been around here for any length of time, you know that I bring this up often, that the people of Israel, they, they, they sin, they forget God, they forget to worship God, they start worshiping other things, and God allows them to go into exile. Do you remember this? That, that Babylon and Assyria come and they take the people of Israel out of their, their homeland, the promised land, and they cart them off to faraway places. And the temple where they were supposed to worship God is destroyed and the people are so devastated over this because they remember, ah, oh, yes, we were supposed to be worshiping this God. We were supposed to be worshiping in that place at the temple. And Ezekiel says that God's glory leaves the temple when the people go into exile. God's glory, his presence leaves the temple. They're carted off into exile. But while they're there, this practice happens. This new thing comes about where they're like, we can't get to the temple. We can't get to our homeland anymore. So they start meeting together. They start having these little assemblies that gather together to read the prophets, to remember the law and the covenant that God had given them. And they become synagogues. So they can't get to the temple anymore. It's destroyed. It's hundreds of miles away. But they can have these little local gatherings that start to happen. So these, these Jewish people, with, with they're trying to remember God and all that he'd done for them, remember to read their scripture, they start gathering together in synagogues while they're in exile. So why am I telling you all this? Because that, start, that practice continues into the New Testament. We see it start to happen in the times of Jesus. Does anybody know the story of Nehemiah and Ezra? Like, if you ever studied these books or, or read these things, there's a fascinating thing that happens in Israel's history. While they're in exile, away from their temple, God's glory has left the destroyed temple. They're, they're far away. They can't get home to their homeland. They have these synagogues happening. Eventually, God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back into the promised land. And through a decree of foreign kings who don't worship Yahweh, he says, go back and rebuild your temple. Go back into the promised land and rebuild this temple. So Ezra and Nehemiah and some followers of Yahweh go back into the promised land. And they're so overjoyed that maybe they can worship God again. They start rebuilding the walls of the temple. They set up the altar again where they can do sacrifices and get into right relationship with God. They start reading the scriptures again and remembering all that God had done for them. They celebrate the feast of Passover and the tabernacles and remember God's faithfulness to them over the years to bring them back into the promised land. But something fascinating to me happens. No one records that God's presence comes and dwells in the temple again. That, that Shekinah glory, if you ever heard this word before, like no one records that God's presence comes back into this temple that's being rebuilt. But the people are there and they're overjoyed that they get to do this again and they're waiting for God to, to return to the promised land. They've got this place now where they're trying to meet again, but people are still scattered all over the countryside, so they're still meeting in synagogues. They're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to remember their calling, that God had set them apart, that God had made them a family, trying to remember the salvation that God had offered for them and saved them from Egypt and from slavery they're trying to remember the Passover, trying to remember the Feast of Tabernacles, doing all these things to remember all that God had done for them with this shabby temple that's starting to be rebuilt, still got synagogues all over the place, but they're trying to remember. I was thinking about this concept of remembering, and I was thinking about when I was younger, so I'm 40, so probably if you're 
35 or older, you've, you've heard about this, you remember this, that when, when I was younger, at least, we celebrated December 7th. We remembered December 7th, 1941, as a day which would live in infamy, right? Some of you older folks know this, younger people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. When Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, it was, it was monumental for the generation probably before me. My parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, were attacked by the Japanese. It was a terrifying day. FDR says it's a day that will live in infamy. And it's a day that's remembered now, but not as much as it used to be, right? It's, it's kind of gone by the wayside. But now my generation and your generation has 9-11. This is like this thing that's just emblazoned in our minds. Like we will never forget that. We will always remember where we were when it happened, the, the fear of that day, the, the emotion of that day, the confusion of that day. And if you see the bumper stickers or pictures on the back of people's cards, it says, never forget, right? And I can tell you, for our generation, we won't. For my kids' generation, they weren't even alive for it. They're not going to remember it the same way that my generation does. So why do I bring this up? Because I'm a nationalist? No, that's not why I bring it up. I bring it up because this, this concept of remembering is important. Because here's the thing. If we don't intentionally remember things, if we don't intentionally remember things, we accidentally forget. You understand what I'm saying? If we don't intentionally set apart something to remember it and continually go back to it and remember it, we accidentally forget. It goes by the wayside. It doesn't become part of our lives. It's not ingrained in who we are. And we forget. And it's the same thing in the church. It's the same thing in the synagogues. It was the same thing in the temple. God says, if you do not intentionally remember what I've done for you, if you do not intentionally remember how I've set you apart, called you out, you will forget. You will forget. And this concept, like I said, is not new just to the church. Jesus was doing this. Jesus himself was going to synagogue on a regular basis preaching the kingdom, remembering the prophets, remembering the promises, remembering all that God had done for his people, Israel. We read in the New Testament in the book of Acts and in the letters that Paul and Barnabas would travel from synagogue to synagogue, city to city, going into their their Jewish background, this place of remembering, and they're remembering what God had done for them. Like this was part of their culture to remember intentionally. And so when we get into the era of the church, you, you will not find a verse, in my opinion, you will not find a verse that says you must go to church. You won't find it. It's not there. There's one verse that I can find in all the New Testament that says anything about church, and it's in Hebrews 10. It says, do not forsake the gathering together. Do not forsake the assembly. Do not forsake the ecclesia of being called out ones, called together. That's it. Because it was so much assumed that the people of God would continue to be together. It was just assumed. All the letters that are written to the churches and to the pastors, it's just assumed that they were gathering together on a regular basis to remember all that God had done. And so what we see in the book of Hebrews is people are saying, well, maybe I don't need to do that. And the author's saying, don't you forsake this. Don't you forsake gathering together as an assembled, called out people. Because he knew that that culture was closing in around them. He knew that people were opposed to Christians, that persecution was starting to ramp up, and that if they didn't remember, they would accidentally forget, and they would become just like everyone else. They would forget all that God had done for them. And church, it is no different for us today. It's no different for us today. In our world, in our culture, we need constant remembering. We constantly need to gather together to remember all that God has done. Here's why. 
we gather together one day a week because the other six days of the week, everything else is trying to tell our story. Everything else is trying to speak into us to get us to center around them, around this thing, around this, this other God, around this other false gospel. Whatever it is, culture is constantly closing in on us, trying to get us to forget, not even intentionally. It's not some insidious thing all the time. We just, it's trying to get us to forget who we are in Jesus. We forget that we are called out ones and we just assimilate into everything that everyone else is doing. And the result is that other things start to tell our story. This is what I mean. For five, six days a week for some of you, you go to a job. You go to a place where, or, or maybe you work from home, but you're being told to produce, produce, produce. You need to produce. If you don't produce, you're not good enough. You need to do more. You need to do more. You need to do more. You need to be this acclaimed salesman, this acclaimed worker, this guy that's lifted up, this woman that's lifted up for doing all of these things. And there's no time for rest. There's no time for Sabbath. There's no time for gathering. There's no time to remember. And to me, it sounds like Israel and Egypt. More bricks, less straw, do more, make it happen. And there's no time for Sabbath. See, the work the production, it starts to tell our story that we're only good if we're producing a whole lot. If we've only reached a certain level. Or we have life troubles, real things, please hear me, real things that happen in life. The car breaks down, the house needs this thing fixing, the kids are having this problem, we've got this issue. And it's for six days, it's closing in on us, trying to tell our story. And we start to center around that. We get worked up around that. We try to figure out how to fix all of that. For six days, this happens in our lives. Or for six days, we, we read the internet or, or, or we watch the news and, and, and we have news telling us, be afraid of this. Be afraid of this. This bad thing is happening. Be scared about this. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. You're getting one or the other every day. Tell, believe this. Believe this. Fear this. Fear this. Do this about this. Take action in this way. Six days centering us around their idea of what salvation looks like, this false gospel. You go to school for five days a week where you're told, get good grades, do these things, succeed this way on the athletic field, do this after school thing. And it's constantly, we're trying to get our identity from it, we're trying to be told who we are by it. And when it doesn't go well, it starts to wreck us on the inside. Social media, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, it's always with us, isn't it? Wake up in the morning, oh, there's that notification. Go to bed at night, there's that notification. At lunch, I'm checking it. In the bathroom, everywhere, right? You know you do this. And if you don't, good for you. Praise God, don't do it. It's this addiction inside of us for six or seven days a week that's constantly inundating us, trying to tell us who we are, trying to recenter us around something else, some other thing that we're trying to be, this look that we're trying to have, these clothes we're trying to wear, this status we're trying to achieve, and it just inundates us. Now, please hear me. I'm not at all saying, okay, Christians need to turn off everything, don't be involved in everything, sequester ourselves away somewhere and be a secret little club. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm encouraging us to is what the church was doing in its infancy, in its early days, is to go and be together one time a week to remember our identity as called out ones, to remember that we don't need to center our lives around all these things that are infiltrating our minds and our hearts the other six days of the week, to remember that we are the family of God on earth. We fellowship together to build one another up. We, we rejoice together when we sing songs and we, and we praise God when we have testimonies in church about things that God has done. We mourn together when people are grieving. We serve together in the church. We pray for people when they are in need and we remind one another that there's something bigger than us at work. 
that God in his providence has chosen us and has a destiny for us in an unshakable kingdom. We remember our deliverance through Jesus, through the gospel, that, that he lived and died on our behalf, that we could be forgiven of our sins and brought into an eternity with him now, all right, full life now and for all of eternity. We gather together and remember that we can rest from production, that we can sit for 40 minutes or an hour or whatever, sing songs and say, I don't need to produce anything. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to achieve anything. I can just bask in the glory of God, in his goodness and his, chosen, in his choosing me. We can gather together and remember that there's another king on the throne. Can I say this again? In this time of politics, there is another king on the throne. Again, I don't care where you fall on the political, political spectrum. There's another king on the throne for all time in an unshakable kingdom that we get to be a part of, regardless of what party is in control. This is restful for me. It is good that we gather together to remember this concept that we live in an unshakable kingdom. And can I say this? A lot of this has been about what we get out of it. We also go to church for one another. We go to church for one another. It is good for me, not just my ego, all right, but it is good for me that you are here. And it is good for you that you are here. And you build one another up and you encourage one another. And you can look around this room and say, I'm not the only crazy one. I'm not alone in this journey. When you go to school, you can look around and say, all right, these kids are in this with me. These other students who are struggling in this way, they're in this with me. When you go to work on, on Wednesday, you can remember, all right, I remember the other 60 people that gathered with me on Sunday morning, and we remember a different king on the throne. You see, listen, who wants to come to church every Sunday? I don't, and I'm the pastor, all right? Like, there are times when I'm like, I would rather just sleep in. Cold, rainy morning, I'd love to just get some coffee and read a book, right? But I know that it is good for me to be with you, and I know that it's good for you for me to be here. And vice versa, right? So like, I understand you don't want to be here all the time. I don't want to be here all the time. But there is something in us that needs to gather together. And God knows that. And he said, it is good for you to remember. Be together regularly. Do not forsake the gathering together. Friends, we do this for one another. When you don't want to be here, you buck up and you get here. Because it's good not just for you, but for them. And vice versa. Let me say this, through a very gospel lens, we do not go to church to check a box. You don't need to. Like I said, there's nothing where God says, you must go to church. That command's not there. But he knows that it's good for us. And through the gospel, we get to be together. We get to serve together. We get to sing together. We get to give offerings together. We get to worship together. Because, listen, God doesn't need your church attendance. He doesn't. He's God. He doesn't need it. I don't need it. He doesn't need it. There's nothing in it that achieves anything for God, but it does something in you, and it glorifies God. So at the end of the day, we gather together to center around the resurrection, to remember what Jesus has done, to remember that we are called out once, that we have been set apart, and we have an eternal, an eternal inheritance with Jesus in an unshakable kingdom. So at the end of the day, God... He doesn't want your church attendance. He wants your relationship. He wants you to be with him. He wants us to be together. He wants your response to the gospel because at the end of the day, it's good for us. 
We get to bless God. It's good for him and it's good for one another. Would you pray with me?